Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 324. Um, as is customary to bless each other during this powerful month, which is the last month of the Hebrew year. And the the preparation for the new year, Rosh Hashanah, Tovshin, Peyalov, coming in a few weeks. It's also Pasha Kisovoy. So we'll be speaking about that, as is our custom to always begin with the timely matters. This program is dedicated in memory of Dvera Bas Mordechai. Okay. This week is also three special days in the Chabad calendar, which is Yud Aleph El, the anniversary, the wedding anniversary of the Rebbe Rashab, Yud Gimel El, the wedding anniversary of the Friedrich Rebbe, and Tezvov El, the day when Hisyastus, the establishment of Yeshiva's Temchit Mim in Lubavitch in Tofresh Nun Zayin, which is the foundation of what the Rebbe Rashab established to create an army, a spiritual army of Tamidich Chachomim scholars, both in the inner dimension of Teirah and the outer dimension of Teirah, to be able to not just be scholars, but also to apply that wisdom to life. The Rebbe Rashab in his prescience was able to foresee the challenges that were coming up ahead, as he explained in his talks, both in Tafresh Nuzayim, when he established Yeshiva in Kuntus Yitzachayim, which is a Kuntus he gave out to explain the purpose of the establishment of this Yeshiva, and especially in the famous talk he gave in 1901, or 1900 actually, Aleph, which would be the year 1900, in the Kol explaining the purpose of the yeshiva. In effect, you can say that every shliach and every shlucha, every emissary and ambassador of the Rebbe that is anywhere in this world, all really is an outgrowth of the education they received in this type of a yeshiva, which was more than, as I said, more than just learning Torah, which of course is the essence of it all, but bring it into action when necessary to go on the front lines and battle the wars, in this case spiritual wars of ignorance, of, uh, of uh, apathy, assimilation, and all the forces that have been challenging Judaism, especially in the last century. So we honor this day of Tezvav Elul. Working backwards, the same year, actually the same time, was the establishment of the yeshiva, was the wedding of the Friedrich Rebbe, who was appointed by the Rebbe Rashab to be the Manal, to be the, to be the director of the yeshiva. So the Friedrich Rebbe was married just a few days, literally two days before the yeshiva began. And Yud Alafel, a few years earlier, when the Rebbe Rashab got married, El, of course, is a month of marriage. It's Mazel uh, is Psula. Anila Deidi Vedeidi Li is one of the acronyms of the month. I am to my beloved, my beloved to me. So man and woman on earth is a model and a microcosm of the levels of Lamayla Kodesh Baruch Hu and Knesset Yisrael, what Chassidus calls Zoh and Malchus. Zoh, Zoyer Ampin, reflects the Chosen, the groom. And Malchus reflects the Kala. So we say the Chodedi, and we say the Kreis Kala. And the Nila Deidi, Vedeidi Li. I am to my beloved, my beloved to me. Because a true relationship is exactly that. It's symbiotic, it's reciprocal. 
And in this case, Anila Dedi, actually, I to my beloved, means it's initiated by the I, and then my beloved to me. So this explains, there's another verse, Vadedi Li Loi, my beloved to me and I to him, and that reflects month of Nisan. That's when Hashem, God, the Chosen, uh, the, the groom, initiated by taking the Jews out of Mitzrayim. And then came the Vadedi Li. Now it's Anila Dedi Vadedi Li because we're at the end of the year, it's our initiative from the bottom up, so to speak to prepare ourselves as we take an accounting for the year, the past year and preparing for the year to come is God's response. So the Rabbeim, of course, epitomize for us and personify the ultimate marriage, the ultimate spiritual and physical union because they, as Rabbeim, are the model of what it means to be a godly person in this world. So the, the Rebbe and the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, Friedrich Rebbe, in the month of El, teach us what Anil Vedeidi Vedeidi Li is. And it's interesting, the word accountability, this month of El is the month of accountability. That's one of the cardinal elements, the cornerstones of a real relationship, trust and accountability. Accountability does not mean perfection. It means that we all may make mistakes, but we're accountable for them. That's the essence of what a human being is like. We don't deny it. We don't cover it up. We don't minimize it. We're accountable. And that's what we demonstrate in this month, our accountability to God, to each other, for our behavior and our actions, ready to take on a new year. And that is the essence, the most important ingredient in a true relationship where there's trust, that there's accountability. I'm not sure who coined this, but they say trust is built not on perfection, but on accountability. And indeed, Moshe Rabbeinu, who's on the mountain now, the third, the third time 40 days to pray and beseech God for forgiveness for the Jewish people after they had built the golden calf, that's what he was telling Hashem. They made a mistake. They made a grave error. However, I will hold them accountable, but I also want you to be accountable, so to speak, because you love each other. And he finally prevailed on Yom Kippur. So the Shechel, Moshe goes up on the mountain, which is 10 days ago, and on 40 days later would be the 10th day of Tishrei, 30 days of El and 10 days of Tishrei, and there you have 40 days when he comes down with the second tablet, successful. Successful with what? With hope. With the ability to correct a mistake. Perhaps the greatest gift in life, the ability to have hope, even when things may seem dire or impossible with the second tablets, and I've forgiven them as you have spoken, as we say, Yom Kippur Eve, right after Kol Nidre, three times. So the message is very clear to us, what the relationship is about, that Abayim's marriage specifically has many lessons to us in their behavior with each other, the respect, the love. We saw it with the Rebbe and the Rebbe, and even though it was discreet, and it was something not really obvious because they were very private, but nevertheless, the little we do know reflects what does it mean a relationship, what it means to have mutual relation, respect, mutual connection, a real partnership. Right before Rosh Hashanah, the Rabbeim had the custom to go in to the Rebetzin and wish her a new year. The Rebbe explained because Rosh Hashanah is about binyan ha-malchus. Malchus is the nekeva, is the, is the isha. So when, what better time, right before Binyan HaMalchus, rebuilding Malchus, rebuilding God's sovereignty, the structure, 
you go into Malchus and you wish a new year to help that rebuilding, which begins with Shoshana and is rebuilt through Binyan Malchus through the 10 days of Tshuva, concluding again with Yom Kippur. So the connections are all there and it's all about that relationship. We say at the Maimer of every Chosan and Kala and Chabad, Yechaz the Maimer that the Friedrich Rebbe said at the Rebbe's wedding in Tafresh Peites. Some add and say the Rebbe's Maimer that he said in Tafshin Yudalad, which was the 20, uh, which was uh, Tafshin Yudalad was uh, Tafresh Peites, Sadik Tess, was the 25th anniversary of the Chasan and Tafresh Peites in Varsha. And in that Maimer, he talks more about this theme of Chosun and Kal, of Zah and Malchus, Mashpi and Makabal, which is ultimately meant to bring the utter union, the total union and fusion of the highest levels to the lowest levels, that everything in existence is built in a structure of Mashpi and Makabal, giving and receiving. And here Makabal doesn't mean receiving in a passive way. The Makabal has an element that, the, that gives back to the Mashpi even more than the Mashpi gives to the Makabal. Eishas Chayla Teraz Bailo. As, Chassidus, as this Maimon and other places in Chassidus explain. So all this is this week, and all part of the general month of El Anila Deidi V'deidi Li. I've spoken about this topic before, so I want to just give you some cross-referencing, more details, in episodes 81 and 82, 132, 177, 276, and 277. So this is an opportunity to also mention some housekeeping, that, that, that uh, we have a special website, chassidahsupply.com, where you can find all the previous episodes, 323 episodes, all archived there. You can also ask any question in a completely anonymous and confidential forum, as well as other resources, including the essays of the previous years. which the announcement of this year's essay contest, the Mitzvah Hashem Blineder, will be next week for Chayel. We hope to be able to announce the winners. So stay tuned for that. And I say Blineder because of all the different disruptions with the pandemic and all other elements connected to that. It's been a challenge, but we're getting on track. We're almost done. So look forward to hopefully next Sunday night announcing the winners. And there's a few different tracks this year which I will go into more detail when I do the announcements next week. Okay. We also are dealing with um, Pasha Kisove. It's Pasha Kisove. Now Kisove, in direct contrast to last week, Kisetse, Kisetse meant when you will go out, when you will exit. Kisove means when you will enter. And enter, the word Sove in Hebrew, means enter Beprimius. And Beprimius is one of the words used for intimacy, actually. Talk about marriage. Anila Deidi Vedeidi Li isn't just a casual, superficial relationship. God says to Meshul Rabbeinu, we will unite there. Yud. It's a form of marriage, a fusion. To become one flesh. Because the kavana, the purpose, ultimately, is not just to have two entities. Remember, God created the male and female as one androgynous creature. Then split them into two, the Nasirah was a split in order for them to reunite and become one again, now in a deeper way, face-to-face, not back-to-back, total unity, basically creating harmony within diversity, unity in a world of duality. Male and female ostensibly appear to be two separate entities, but they're really two facets, two dimensions of divine energy. 
One is a Er HaMashpia, Er HaMekabal. One is the energy that gives off light, that is a, 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 an aggressive energy, and the other is an internal energy. Each of us has both those dimensions, and we need them both. We need to have our expressive side, but we need to have our innermost intimate side. And they come together, that's ultimately the meaning of a marriage. Even though it's referring to Eretz Yisrael, but it's saying when you'll enter by Pnimius, which means you'll become one with it. Which, of course, is also connected to the yeshiva. What does the word yeshiva mean? Yeshiva means to settle in, to sit. When you're standing, you're still in a state of transience. You could be moving, you can walk. When you sit down, especially in a comfortable seat, what you have is besukas teishvu. Teishvu means that you're shashvus. Yashvus means it settles in. It's a word also used when we understand an idea to the point that it becomes integrated and internalized within us, it's called Yashvus. It's settled in. It's not, it's, it's not still something outside of you, but you feel, inter- you feel it resonates with you. So the yeshiva, yeshiva in general means, a yeshiva is referring to not just learning teda, but learning teda in a yashvus, in a yeshiva dika way, in a way that it becomes internalized and integrated, and become part and parcel and one with the person who is doing the yeshiva. So kisove ala'aretz, the idea of sove, entering Baprimius is a yeshiva type of experience, becoming one with the thing that you're experiencing. And what does the Torah tell us? That kisove ala'aretz, when you'll enter the land, immediately the mitzvah of what? Of bikurim, the first fruit offering. Essentially the mitzvah of gratitude, showing gratitude for your gifts, for the blessings that come in our lives. Today, a lot is said about gratitude, how gratitude is actually healthy for you, psychologically, emotionally. There are statistics and studies that show how much gratitude does for a human being, can uplift your spirits, can transform a person literally from one place to another. Why? Because gratitude is, means it's not about me. It's recognizing that it's not just me, 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 and hey, I deserve and I feel entitled. Gratitude is a humble recognition of the gifts we were blessed with. Whatever gift that may be, the gift of life, the gift of health, the gift of, of a livelihood, the gift of entering the land after all, they, all the travails that they went through. So it's showing gratitude. Every morning when we say Moida'ani, we bring from our first fruit right in the morning, first energy. What do you use it for? Thank you for returning my soul to me. Moidim anachnu lach. Hoidu, earlier in davening. Hoidu, then moidim anachnu lach. Yehuda, which is also the level of Malchus. Malchus is Yehuda Hidah. Kabbalah soil. It's one of the most powerful gifts in life. Even though you could say, one second, I'm not receiving anything. I'm acknowledging someone else. That's the greatest gift that you receive. The ability to transcend yourself and recognize something beyond you. And that in turn brings you a deeper level of appreciation, a deeper level of harmony, a deeper level of serenity in life. So the chassidus applied in all of this is quite obvious. It's always good to spell out what we learn from this moment in time, Pasha Kisave, this week I should say, Kisave, the idea of gratitude, Bikurim. The word Bikurim comes from the word Bechayr, firstborn. So it relates to the first fruit, the firstborn, the Bechayrim, firstborn also, Petah Bechayr, also you have Bechayr, Petah Chamer, you also have among animals the first, so you have in the world of vegeta- vegetation, Bikurim, in the world of Chayas and animals, 
you have the idea of giving of the first and the Bnei Odom, the Bechor. Which is why you make a Pidyan Haben, because the Bechor essentially is meant to be Kedush. Now going into all the details, what you see here, all of them, is that the first always reserve for acknowledging and appreciating the gifts that were given to you in your life. And the month of El, that's an excellent way of helping prepare, in addition to accountability, appreciation of what we have. Yes, it's a challenging time. Some of us have lost loved ones, friends, family. We, some of us, have suffered from the COVID-19. Some are still suffering. Everyone should have a complete refur shlema. And yet, there's much to be thankful for as well. We don't just look at it as one big package. You have to separate and say the things that we need help and we need brachas for. We say to God, we don't understand your ways and please send us a complete refur shlema for those that need it. In a completely revealed way, without aggravation, without even one moment of, of, uh, of setback, only see the, the begili revealed way, the growth. But there's so many other things to thank Hashem for, thank God for, the blessings we do have, and never take for granted what we have in our lives. And besides, there's the menschlichkeit, that's the, the decent thing to do is to thank, there's also the element, of course, of what it brings back to us. It makes us whole, more wholesome human beings when you thank someone. I remember reading somewhere a study that was done. People of different, they just a study of select people. Some of them were in a very depressed state and some were not such a depressed state. And they tested gratitude. They asked each person to remember something in their life. It could be back from their childhoods that they would like to thank the person that helped them and write a letter to that person. That's how it began. Afterwards, the next step, and all these people were not aware of what would come next. They said, now we're going to call that person. You're going to call that person and read the letter to them. You could see people were not that comfortable because some people we haven't spoken to in years. For some, it was a parent. For some, it was an educator. For some, it was an old friend. And you have to see the reaction, the way they describe the reaction. I believe it's also in a video. It's amazing. And literally, you see a shift now, they didn't get through to everybody, etc., but they ultimately did. And the one that was the most depressed, you could see a shift. Now, what happened? His life circumstances changed? No, but he was able to reframe and refocus. And it reminded me of a, of a line that I'm not sure who, again, who coined it, that said, when you can't change the world, change the way you look at the world, which is so essential to the way Hachsidus teaches us to think. Not everything we can change. Not everything is meant to be changed. But how we look at it, how we understand it, our attitude, that is completely in our control. So all this applies to our time, especially with all the uncertainties and the unknowns. We're going to the high holidays. That alone is an unknown for many. Where am I going to be? Can I go to shul, not go to shul? But remember, wherever you are, God is with you, and you have the capacity to experience the highest levels of connection, of no matter where you are. Yes, is it easier in our comfort zone? Of course, because that's our structures. That's we can depend on the old, dependable, reliable structures. But on the other hand, this is a greater opportunity. Far more, we need far more. Be, far, we need to be far more innovative. It's far more refreshing. And it's like challenging yourself, challenging the givens of your life, and looking deeper to find deeper connection to Hashem, to God, people around you, to community, to your rabbis and synagogues course, to family, and to everyone and everything that is going on today.
Okay. So a little more cross-referencing about Pasha Kisove and El, 178, episodes 178, 227, 228, 277 and 3.22. Some of you may also be familiar with my book, 60 Days. It's a book I wrote a number of years ago, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. It's actually a guide, a journey, through these 60 days, beginning from Rishchei 10 days ago, concluding at the end of Tishrei, these powerful months, that we are taught are meant to be transformative. We look to them, the new year, a new leaf, a new, a new openings, new beginnings, new possibilities. And yet many of us don't always find the tools. And we become frustrated because it doesn't get fulfilled, at least not in an obvious way. So I wrote the book in order to help us go through this journey and personalize it. Each day has a thought, an exercise, facts, historical facts, customs, laws, and it's been extremely well received beyond my expectation. It's a very unique book if you haven't seen it before, 60 Days. We also send out a daily email, as well as now a daily podcast. So feel free to access it. Just go to our site, MeaningfulLife.com. Look for 60 days. Be easy to subscribe and find more information. And uh, it's a companion to help you in your journey, especially customize and personalize it in your own way. For people who are leaders of communities, rabbis, teachers, and so on, it's an excellent tool as well. We have a, this year we made a special Zoom version which you can use and with uh, companion materials that you can teach and interact with and study with your communities. So please check that out as well. As I said, everything is available at MeaningfulLife.com. Just look for 60 days. Okay. With that, let us now move to some questions. A bunch of very interesting questions today. The first one we shall begin with is related to El. Surprise, surprise. Hello, Rabbi. It is a beautiful image you paint describing the month of El as a period of time when our king is present in the field, smiling on each one of us and is very accessible to all. Is the month of El considered a month of harvest in the land of Israel? Well, interesting question. Never thought of it that way. Melech Basad. So first of all, I have to give credit where credit is due. I may have been the, the Gemara says that the wine belongs to the owner, but you say thank you to the waiter. I may have been the waiter. I delivered the message on this program and in different platforms. But the, the, the allegory and the metaphor is the Alter Rebbe's in Lukutetera, Melch Basada, that the king in the field, that God is like a king in the field during the month of El, that he's accessible and smiling to each one of us. But I thank you for your kind words. So being that the Melch Basada, so Sada right away elicits the idea of harvest. And we know how the holidays, the holidays, the Jewish holidays are all around harvest. We say Pesach is Chag Ha, Chag Ha Oviv, all around the, the harvest. So indeed, it does say that in the month of El, I've never seen it in Svarim connected in books that talk about the connection to El, but this part, time of the year in Israel is the, usually the harvest of, of dates and, uh, and especially grapes and I believe pomegranate 
and a few other such fruits. The harvest, Shavuos, is wheat. Pesach is the beginning of the season, barley, but it's usually the beginning of the Chagov, when you begin to sow the fields, because the beginning of spring. And Chaga Osif, which is on Sukkot, is when we gather in the final harvest. So I never saw this stated explicitly in connection with El. I would need to look some more. There's a mimer in Parshas Mishpotim and Parsha De'e in Eratera that discusses the different harvests. So I will look there to see if it connects to El. I'm, I believe not, but thank you for the question. So yes, there is a technically a harvest, but as far as connection to El, grapes and the dates, I'm not sure what the connection is, if there is indeed one. Okay, but, but, but clearly, because it's the end of the summer, remember, month of July, August, El is usually July, August, August. So, of course, things are still growing, and different uh, fruits have their different times of, of fruition. Okay, next question. I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. Everything I read and hear about I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me, Anila Li, is an allegory between Israel and the Jewish people, between God and the Jewish people, as I understand it. Yes, indeed. The, current, the verse comes from Shir Hashirim, King Solomon's poem about our relationship to God, and I understand the analysis, the deepness of the relationship, how profound it, how profound it is, all that. Probably not as profoundly as I should, but I'm working on it. This is my question. This, is verse is very, this verse is very intimate. Another phrase alluding to our relationship with God. But it's also a very real and physical verse that can be alluded to human beings. And yet I never see a lesson or sheer class directly related to that relationship in the context of the commentaries. I have read about the verse. seems that the pshat of the verse, the literal meaning, the literal, the almost obvious meaning is not dealt with at all. Sum up, are the verses in the Song of Songs ever to be understood literally? Very good question. Say, A verse is never beyond literal. The verse, may have other interpretations, and it definitely does. There's Pshat, Remez, Drush, Sod. Remez, the allegorical. Drush is the homiletic. Sod is the esoteric. But, A Mikri a verse also cannot be taken out of its literal, even if it has deeper meanings, and it always does. The Rambam yet says, that's Bashir Hashirim, he says that it is an allegory for God and the Jewish people. Now, Shir Hashirim is, when you read it, is, when you read it literally, is a romantic poem between a man and a woman. No doubt, that's how Shlema Melech wrote it. However, especially as Chassidus explains it, it's not just a moshel. Chassidus explains an allegory isn't just an example. I may give a human being, a teacher may give an example from some foreign object to explain a more abstract idea. But a moshal is nishtalshal from the nimshal, meaning the fact that a man and woman exist and they have a romantic relationship in a sacred way, as I discussed before, an is evolves from the relationship of Zoh and Malchus, the two spiritual entities and attributes of the divine, HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Knesset Yisrael. God as God manifests in more of a male or chosen groom format. And how God manifests in the Malchus, Shechina, the feminine dimension of the divine. 
Yichud Kutshebricha Vishchinta, we say. The union of Kutshebricha Vishchina. What does that mean? God is not one, Hashem Echad. But there's dimensions how God manifests. And the Liachid Kutshebricha Vishchinta means that we are uniting the two, uniting the, the divine that is beyond existence with the divine that is within existence. Like the Yichud of Sevevamamal in the language of Chassidus. The transcendent with the imminent. How does that evolve on a physical level? So just like chesed evolves into water, physical water, and gvura evolves into physical fire, male and female below are created in the divine image. What divine image? The two dimensions of the masculine and feminine energy. So that's the first thing. So even though, yes, the literal is male and female, but that itself is an expression of the divine and the, and the souls of Israel. Shamas Israel, Knesset Israel. But what about the actual physicals referring to human relationships? The answer is yes. You have to say it's also, because there are many ways that Shlema Melech could have written it. The issue is, and this is why some say, it says that they wanted to, wanted to hide Shirashirim, because it could be misunderstood. Let me just explain with another, another context. One of the reasons Kabbalah, mysticism, was always off limits except for individuals. And individuals itself with all kinds of limits how to study it. Only one, only one person studies it, not in groups. And all the other limits, one of the reasons is because Kabbalah can be misunderstood. Kabbalah is speaking about esoteric and abstract divine levels, but it speaks in the language of the human being. And therefore there are all kinds of, uh, 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 all kinds of expressions that are very erotic but not erotic as we understand it. As soon as I say that word, I already feel that I have to explain myself. Because we may misunderstand, as the Tzemach Sadek writes in the beginning of Sherish Mr. Satfila, that the Rebbe Shem is very careful, that we learn Kabbalistic ideas to make sure that it shouldn't become material, too materialistic, people shouldn't take it literally. So it talks about Yichud Zun, the unification between Zohar and Malchus, or Zivugim, which is also a form of uh, a match. These have intimate and erratic meanings. And when a person is living in this world, and many of us don't, are not trained to think in refined terms, we can turn it into something that is not what it's meant to be by, by translating in too much of a way that human beings will somewhat taint and even contaminate their concepts. Sexuality, or intimacy, the better word for it, is the highest form of energy. It's, as pure, it's the purest form of energy. The Shalor writes that there's no higher yichud and gedusha than the gedusha sazivug, which means the intimacy of a sacred union of a marriage of a husband and wife, kedushin and suyin, in a sacred way. But at the same time, in a world like ours, where people have their own agendas, especially after the world of eat, after the eating of the tree of knowledge, where there's self consciousness. So intimacy can be distorted. It can be abused. It itself is the purest thing. But like the Holy of Holies, if it's not appreciated, it can be violated. And then it becomes, it can be a very destructive force. That's why we're extremely careful. When husband and wife come together intimately, most beautiful thing, according to Tehidah and Halacha, it's the most sacred thing possible. The only thing that can give birth to a child. And yet there are times not to do it, there are times that's forbidden to have marital relations. 
And definitely has to be done in an intimate way. Intimate doesn't mean a secret way. It means in a private way, in a personal way. Certain things have to be done with that type of sanctity. You don't go in the street and be intimate there. Because you're respecting the dignity and you're respecting the holiness of it. Just like the Holy of Holies is in a particular place and only once a year the high priest went in on Yom Kippur. So intimacy is associated with those highest levels of connection. When that's not understood or a person is not refined enough, then it can have what's called a yanika sachitzenim. It means that other forces can, can wean energy, can... can uh, extract energy from very powerful energy in the wrong pass in the wrong way. That's why so much care has to be taken. And that's why Shirashirim, when you read it, it's important to emphasize this. If a person knows how to reach that type of level of refinement, where they see intimacy and sexuality and romance and eroticism all purely in the context of holiness, then they'll reach Shirashirim in a very different way. But for most of us, that's not the case. For whatever the reason, either because we live in a world where really we have distorted views or we just happen to be more materialistic beings and these ideas can distract us, not easy to focus on the godliness within it. Whatever the reason may be, that is why you're not going to find classes or books or others that discuss the literal because of this, this ability to be misunderstood. So we stay with the intention of the nimshal, which is the divine and the... And the the marriage between God and the Jewish people, between the, the divine and, and, and the human race, and understanding that that evolves to male and female. And we try to elevate ourselves to live on that level of in its purest form and not in any way to contaminate or toxify or taint its true meaning. That's the general answer to the question. Okay, next question. What should I think about when listening to the Shafer? It seems very boring now that I've been hearing it so often because we, we, we sound the Shafer every day in Elul. It seems meaningless. How can I make it more meaningful? Another person writes that he was in therapy and his uh, therapist was a naturalist, said to him, since you listen to the shofar, he pointed out different kavonis, different intentions in the yud, ke in the blowing of the sounding of the shofar. He's asking, as a chabadnik, does it make sense for me to follow those intentions? So let me answer both those questions. <clears throat> um, shofar, like every mitzvah, has two parts to it. It has the technical part, the mechanical part, the gufa daraisa, the body, you need to have a ram's horn. It has to be shaped a certain way. The way you, the sounds have to be so, sh- blown a certain fashion. The blessings that are made on Rosh Hashanah, of course. I mean, there are details. There are a lot of hilchus shefer. It's a whole series of halachas of of, of what, the shefer itself and how it sounds, the sounds and all the, and everything related to it. Then there's neshama the soul of a mitzvah the soul of Torah, the soul of a mitzvah, which is the kavona, the intention. Rab Sadiqan brings t- ten reasons of why, the Avud Raham cites ten reasons of why we sound the shofar. 
whether it reminds us the ayel, the shefer, the ram of uh, doing the akeda, the binding of Yitzchak, or the ram's horn sounded by Matan Teda, or it's a wake-up call, or the ram's horn connected to Mashiach. There's 10 different reasons. I, I cite them and explain them all in the in 60 days that I mentioned earlier. So those are, intent, those are reasons. The Rambam says that even though it's exodus a cause of the sounding of the shofar, yet has a remez. Uri yeshenim Wake up, sleepy ones, from your slumber. So there are deeper meanings behind it. Then there, of course, there are kavonus ha-shefer. In Siddur Mdach, the Mitla Rebbe Siddur, which she compiled from the Maimorim of the Alta Rebbe, in the order of the Siddur, he has a whole section, Tkiya Shefer, according to the Kavonis of Baal Shem Tov. So you have many intentions. There's Kavonis Arizal, and a different Kavonis of Shalah. You go through the Mukabalim, especially the Kabbalists, have many different intentions. But also others for it. As again, I cite many of them in the book 60 Days. There's a special prayer section, a special section on the sounding of the Shofar. So to make anything come alive is when you do it, not just mechanically, when you understand some of the meanings behind it. Will we ever understand all of them? Not necessarily. But when you, for example, understand, just to give one, two examples I'm going to give. The narrowness of the shafer by the mouth and the, the width where the sound comes out, from my constraints, from my straits, they are, I call out to you, and God answers me with his expansion. So the, even the very shape of the shafer is symbolic of our life experiences. That when you're in duress, or you're in any other situation where you're challenged, Meitzar, your duress, your, your stress, your anxiety, your fears, your uncertainties, you call out from the sincerity and the depth of your heart when a person cries out from that type of being pressured, the response will be expansive. So that when you think about that, then the shepherd becomes personalized. Another example, the sounds themselves. So the Gemara talks about the three different sounds. And Chassidus elaborates. It's the sound of your soul. The shefer is a pure sound instrument. And it reflects the sound of your soul. And the sound of your soul has three different expressions. There's the tkiya, which is just a kale poshut, the sound, a long sound. There's the shvarim and the trua. One is like staccato, one is more like, you know, a, a uh, tu 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 which is like someone crying short bursts of tears, and one is more sobbing. <gasps> so you have all three types of sounds that reflect the sounds of our soul. Not always anguish. It could also be sounds that are just the soul crying out because it's striving for and yearning and pining for some greater experience. So the key thing to make Shofar come alive in a personal way is by understanding its intention. And for that matter, every mitzvah is that way. You do mitzvahs anoshim ulamada. Mechanical mitzvahs tend to become monotonous. And you may do it, you may continue to do it out of Kabbalah sale because you commit it by rote. But it's far more deeper and passionate and exciting when you infuse it with intention and personalizing it. I mentioned 60 days because there I spelled it out in detail that many people use. But you can find it, in, I'm sure, in many places online and other places, the deeper meanings of Shefer. Whether to use the kavonis, if it's a legitimate kavonis, so as a chabadnik, I would say start with chsidis chabad kavonis. If there are other kavonis coming from a source that's legitimate and it speaks to you, why not? 
But I think through Chassidus Chabad, there's a lot more explanation that you can relate. The Kabbalistic Kavonas are somewhat cryptic. The way Chassidus explains it, it helps us internalize it a bit more, a little more relevant, a little more personal. Or maybe a lot more. Okay, next. We've been talking about prayer because especially in the month of El, it says that even those, the scholars, take off some time from learning to do more prayer, tachrunim, prayers, psalms, and so on. So another question about prayer, which is related to previous weeks, is I'm just reading it because it came in just in the few last week. Is there a time during the day or week or year when prayers are more effective and can enter God's chamber without obstacles? So we discussed this very explicitly last week in episode 323, and I believe also in 322, both about space and time. Why, for example, davening in a shul, or davening this year with all the, obviously only halachically and what the medical professionals tell us, at the koisel or at holy sites. Same thing with time, davening Yom Kippur, davening during Rosh Hashanah, Aser Shemei Tshuva, Dirshu Hashem B'Yemotsui, Karu B'Yesei Karav, we're told. So the Gemara says, Dirshu, beseech, reach out to God. When he's found, when he's to be found. Call out to him when he's close. What does that mean? He's always to be found, he's always close. Says the Gemara, that's a Sarasimei Tshuva. Sarasimei Tshuva, there's a certain deeper closeness. Not from God's perspective, from our perspective, there are less obstacles, as you put it, less layers, as we discussed. So just go, please go back to last week's program and two weeks ago, and I explain it more at length. The month of Elul, this month, and the month of Tishrei are definitely times that are more like that. During the day, yes, the three times, three times of the day when we die. You can pray anytime to God. I don't mean it's shrachas mincha You could always cry out to God. You could always say tilim, especially by day. So by, but the time of shachas, the time of mincha, and time of mayav are opportune times. Think of it like more opportune. They're e- easier to access, less obstacles, less blocks. Especially Mincha, the Gemara says, A person should always be careful of the Mincha prayer, because Elio was not answered, his prayers were not answered except by Mincha, because Mincha has a special auspicious power. Esrotzen, it's called. Esrotzen means a channel that's open. So there are times that are definitely more conducive for that. Okay. Now, Though this is a painful topic, but it's a real topic that has to be addressed. Um, so I'm going to continue. I started speaking about it a few weeks ago. This is something that goes back before COVID. Many questions came in on this topic, and I just feel, because I see more and more people suffering from this, spouses suffering, that I think it's important to address. I prefer not to address it in the month of El, to be very honest, but maybe the month of El is the best time to address it. And that's phone addiction and worse. So we spoke about this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to take it now a little further. And uh, this may require viewer discretion advised, a little more subtle and sensitive areas. But as you know, this program is meant to take and address and apply it to address the issues of our time, the issues that we struggle with. And one of the main things I want to focus on, things that are not spoken about for whatever reason by others, to address it, and of course in a modest and the edla, refined way, chesidusha way, but still address it because people are suffering and sometimes very alone, no one to talk to, or even when you talk to someone, they give very bad advice or they just dismiss it or very critical and judgmental. 
and all that does not help. So let me take this and talk about this some more. And here are two, I'll see with time allowing, two very painful letters that I'm going to read in their entirety because of the painful element of it. And uh, please bear with me. And as I said, I hope most people don't deal with this, but unfortunately, as I know, and many of us know, this is more prevalent than we may know. And it needs to be addressed. We have addressed it in previous episodes. I will give references. But that does not mean the problem is gone. And what better time in the month of El when we're cleaning up our act and we're like literally cleaning house. That's what tshuva is, return. So we know there's two levels of tshuva, tshuva tata and tshuva ilah. So tshuva tata, to use just a basic example, tshuva tata is dealing with iniquities, mistakes, errors, sins, things that we need to clean. Tshuva law is connecting to God. So one example is very simple. You buy a house. Before you bring in new furniture, first you clean up the dust. That's what you do before you bring anything new in. Tshuva tata is cleaning the dust. You have to clean out the dust. Once you clean out the dust, the deeper part of an neshama that can connect and does connect, and it's not connected to negative. Like it says, tshuva is not on a sin, especially tshuva law. It's ruach toshevel lekim Hashem It's the spirit of the human being returning, tshuva, return to its source. But you can't do that if you're covered with garbage on all around you. You can't cover, you can't do that when you're, when you're in a toxic state. So we need to have stage one, clean up, get rid of the dust as much as possible. Then you can celebrate and become connected. And this is true in Anila Dei Dividei First you need cleaning things up. And then you could say, okay, now let me connect to my beloved. Especially if you betrayed or did something negative, you can't just say, okay, let's forget about it and let's move on and let's just uh, forget, just love each other. Moshe was 80 days on the mountain because they built a golden calf. He needed to deal with that. Once he dealt with it, then we can get the Yom Kippur, Salach So we talk about general phone addiction without specifics a few weeks ago. I believe that was in episode 320. And now, I want to um, talk about spouse of, spouse of addict to inappropriate materials. Five months ago, I discovered that my husband was watching inappropriate things online. Heartbroken, hurt, lost, confused, I found myself also being relieved. It explains so much that had been going on in our marriage. The wall I always felt was there, but couldn't pinpoint exactly. Now the monster had a face, and we could, we could at least address it head on, what was always there hidden beneath wraps. So here's my question. You've addressed a number of times the person dealing with the struggle itself. But what about that person's spouse? What does Chassidus say about their healing process? How can I show support and be there for him while also making it clear that I'm not okay with his behavior and how deeply it hurts me in our relationship. What is my role as his wife at this point? Do I stay hands off, show him complete trust again, and never bring up how deeply he has hurt me, how deeply he has hurt me? Is it my responsibility to deal with my hurt on my own with a professional without ever expressing it to him? I don't want to set him back. I only recently recognized that without realizing it, I have been waiting for him to acknowledge what he has done for him to own up and apologize and ask me if it's still hard for me and not to tell me how he will do anything and everything to try to regain my trust 
and will try to not hurt me ever again if he can help it. I understand that I'm only in control of myself and I can't pin my healing on someone else's actions. I can be whole again without him ever saying any of those words, but it is unfair to have that expectation of a But is it unfair to have that expectation of a spouse? The person who's meant to love me and cherish me most in the world? How do I wrap my head around the fact that he's the one who hurt me? Am I going about this all the wrong way? I know he finds it hard to respect himself after all this and thrives off my giving him respect. Is there a way to respect him if I don't respect some of his choices? And how do I regain trust in him when it has been completely, when it has been completely shattered? Only last week, after discovering a secret account he made to watch a show that was basically inappropriate, straight up, with some gore and dialogue thrown in there, did he acknowledge, after my asking him what he would do if he slipped up, that it would be harder to come to me than he thought? And he does actually need help. He can't do this on his own. This is, that is where we currently stand. Both of us need our own help, and I just want to know what that looks like from a Hasidic point of view. I want to be in a healthy place. I don't want to suppress anything like I've done these past few months, where every now and then it resurfaces and hurts both of us in the process. What is my path to healing that is wholesome and teridic? How do I deal with my pain while also supporting my husband, even if that may, means he may slip up again? What do I have to come to terms with? What boundaries can I put down? When can I say this is more than I can handle and I'm not okay with this? Help. And my husband asked if I can help him find someone to talk to. Who would you recommend? A therapist that can bring in the Hasidic approach. Thank you for your time and this, is beyond incre- and, and this beyond incredible resource that you have made available for the masses. You're truly helping real people with real struggles, so thank you, thank you. Then following up to this question, I received from the same person the following. I wrote this out a lot more, but the question boils down to the above paragraph. So I cut it out, but I feel like this may give more insight into the situation as it stands now. And again, I'm taking this exception, I'm saying this to the audience, and I'm reading it more in detail because unfortunately this is a story of many people, and I wanted to give someone the ability to express themselves, which may be the voice for so many others, and then I will do my best to try to respond. My first reaction when finding everything was to brush it under the rug and try to be a better wife. More present, attentive, and available. But a nagging voice inside me told me that this wasn't the first time and nothing will change if it wasn't addressed. Trying to put myself in his shoes, I realized how much shame must be involved in this for him. How he must have felt that he needed to hide this part of himself in a deeply dark, deep dark closet because who could, who could love him if they knew his secret? My heart broke for him and all I wanted was to let him know that I love him and we can face this together in the light. That we are human and we can make mistakes and I never needed him to be perfect just to be honest with me and let me help him. I wanted him to know that I'm in this with him throughout, through thick and thin, and that God put us on this earth with our bodies and gave us these struggles. And when we do overcome them, small victories or large, it gives him the most immense pleasure. That first night we talked and cried and laid bare some of the wounds. I know my husband has the tendency to think horribly about, horribly about himself and berate himself, which only would further the problem. Atzvus, not meridus. That's from Tanya. Depression, not sadness. 
demoralizing depression and not motivating sadness. So I tried not focusing on how hurt I was or how inadequate I felt as a wife, how I've been blindsided by my implicit trust and how broken I felt. Instead, I tried very hard to focus and emphasize to my husband all the good that he has, the beauty he possesses in being a real, vulnerable human, the innate purity that remained untouched by all this, his soul, and the ability we have all been given to rise up from darkness and reach greater heights, how our relationship would be deeper, more wholesome, and real for all of us, and how the whole point of Tanya is to talk to humans who slip and fall, but who have the power to get up again. And therein lies the beauty of Yiddishkeit, being a real program for real people. I told him that I love him and I'm committed to helping out in whatever way he needs, but that I feel this is beyond our expertise and that we should seek help since we lack the tools necessary to deal with this. I try to convey that it's not just a matter of stopping, but addressing the underlying issue. He told me that he spoke to someone once right before we got married, but the Mashbia gave some vague, unhelpful answer, and so he concluded that no one can help him, only he can help himself. He thought that marriage might help with this issue, but obviously did not. He did not wish to seek help again or tell anyone, and also asked that I not speak to anyone at least for some time to give him a chance to do better, and if, I f- if, and if I feel like it, I'm out of my depth, that I absolutely need help, then he can't stop me. I know you can't force someone to get help for themselves, so I didn't push it, but I told him that I'm the, one, that I'm the only one he's willing to tell, then he has to tell me when he feels himself slipping again, or if he needs help, and he shouldn't be ashamed to come to me. I didn't think it would be the healthy, that healthiest dynamic for me to be checking in on him, and looking over his shoulder, which is one, but not only, which is not one, but not the only reason I thought therapy or an accountability partner would be a better idea. As his wife, I was too close to all of this, and I didn't think he would actually come to me with these particular struggles. Every so often, I would ask him how it's been going, which part were difficult, which I can help with, etc. The only times he ever shared, or if I asked directly, and sometimes not even then. I wanted so bad to get to the place beyond the struggle, where our relationship was whole and beautiful that I never fully allowed myself to navigate through all of the confusion and hurt that this saga brought on. I especially felt that I couldn't really speak about it with my husband because he still had so much shame and pain attached to all of this as well. It was still a very sensitive topic, and so we didn't talk about it a lot. So long as everything was going smooth, we were fine. We were in a good place, more whole and happy and honest, but then something would happen, the smallest of things, and all the hurt and confusion would come rushing back and throw me in the slumps. I didn't want to pour that on my husband. I didn't want to hurt him, but I just can't leave it undealt with. Okay. I have received, I will tell you, without exaggeration, hundreds of such letters over the period of time we've been doing these programs. So first of all, and this is also why I wanted to read it in detail, it's true, there's two different issues here. There's your husband's issues and there's your life. He needs help, and you cannot help yourself, which I'll talk about in a moment, but you also need help. And I mean that in a good way. I cannot tell you the feelings I have of support, of respect, admiration for you being able to write so openly. The mere fact that you can be so blunt and you're not minimizing. On one hand, yes, all the belief you have in your husband's soul and the marriage and the love, which is beautiful. 
but at the same time, clearly not naive to the facts. You've been hurt time and again, and you realize it's not just going to be belief in his neshama that's going to help. Is itself, I believe, an unbelievable example to so many people, which is, again, why I read it, and I commend you. So I want to say to everyone listening to this, if you have any challenge of this nature, whether it's yourself, your own addictions, or a spouse, do not be quiet and suffer silently. Speak to somebody. You can write to me. I will address it. You want to reach out to me and speak to me. I'm available. I'll make myself available because to me this is pikuach nefesh. It's not just you and your husband. It's also children, family. It's generational. But you must know, and everybody must know there's someone you can speak to. I'm talking about confidentially, obviously, that will protect everyone's interests, but with the goal of getting help, not to keep it under the carpet, as you put it. So that's the most important thing of all. You may say, well, that doesn't solve the problem. You, you, you will never imagine how much it helps solve the problem. Because the first step of everything is awareness. I tell you with, unequivocally, without question, that most problems, even though they are a problem in and of themselves, is the silence, is the cover-up, is the minimizing, is the denial, is the avoidance. That's a much far worse problem than the original problem. That's why it's so vital that every person has someone to speak to. A mentor, a teacher, a, a, a colleague, a friend, a relative. Obviously someone that you trust, someone that will be also understanding and empathetic. But even if they may not be able to directly help you because they're not trained, but you've done one thing. You've regained your dignity by being able to speak. Now again, you say, is that a solution? No, but that gives you strength. Like the Alter Rebbe, you quoted the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe says that when you're demoralized, you can't fight any battle. How are you going to deal with such challenges with a husband who may be in denial, maybe not in denial, maybe doesn't even know himself what to do when you're not at full strength? And full strength comes with someone there at your side that you know that you're not becoming crazy, that it's not you, that it's not you becoming too critical of your husband, that you're not going to destroy your marriage. Someone that supports and can help in a wise way to navigate this. Don't underestimate the dignity that that gives you, that gives you ability to deal with this. Because then you can talk more clearly, more objectively, not blinded, not afraid, walking on eggshells. If I say this or I don't say this. That's number one. So you began by writing this. Whenever this was written, it's not recent because I know that because of COVID, I, these issues I essentially pushed off, but it's not, I hope the issue is solved for you, but I know it's not solved for everybody, so it's still worth talking about. So number one is that ability to find someone to speak to. And anyone listening to this who has not found someone, I'm telling you this is the most important aspect. It's like fresh air. When you're living in a toxic environment, especially with a husband, especially you love him, and you have children, and there's so many things that you want to do, Shabbos, Yom Tov coming, and so, I mean, so many different things. You need fresh air, and fresh air comes not from the same environment where the toxins are merging from. That's a friend, a mentor. And I emphasize it again and again because people minimize how important that is. That person can help you discuss, okay, let's look at the options. Let's see what we can come up with. Point number two is you need, as they say, well, today people don't fly that much. First, you put on an oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on others. You need that oxygen. You need that strength. And with that strength, you can then enter the phrase, so to speak. 
So the next point is how do you get your husband to do something about it? Remember, the easiest thing for someone addicted is to say, I'll do, I won't do it again. Trust me, don't talk to anyone about it. Of course, I'll say that. Due to shame or just due to their own comfort zone or, or dis- deluding themselves. They think they can still solve it themselves. They can't. It's very clear in this situation they can't. And no, the person cannot be trusted. So literally be like someone who's going and eating poison. Trust me. So as a spouse, you have to see that this is poison. This is poison. It's not poison in the sense of life-threatening, a physical poison, thank God. But it's a different form of poison. It's psychological, emotional poison, especially for a relationship. Your husband may not be aware of that. So the question is, how do we deal with someone who's doing something toxic and destructive and is not aware? And because of time limitations, I will continue the discussion, but I'll just say the following. The person has to become accountable. If somebody is not becoming accountable and you allow them to be that, you become an enabler. Sometimes it's called codependent. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to disturb. You don't want to create a, a, a crisis in the marriage. But if there's indeed something like that that's toxic, it has to be addressed. And it has to be addressed with a third party. It would be like someone taking poison. No, doesn't want to go see a doctor. Someone who has some other illness doesn't want to do something about it. It doesn't work that way. The question is how to go about that. Do you go about it with an ultimatum? Do you go about it with kind way? So the, of course the answer is you try everything. You always begin in a more gentler fashion. But if a person doesn't respond to that, you have to be ready to go tougher. You know, I have letters that say, what about when a child discovers their father doing something inappropriate like that? So then you can't just say, oh, and then they find it again. I mean, you're dealing, as I said, with generational issues here. And we cannot minimize that. So because of time limitations again, I'm going to continue to see this as part one. I began responding. By no means is this the end of this discussion. And I will talk about what one can actually do. But not to leave it hanging, if anyone is dealing with it right now, so number one, make sure you talk to someone. That person will help you find some composure, some fine presence, some type of inner strength to at least say, okay, there's a fire burning. Let's see, what are we going to do about this fire burning? But if you're not talking to anyone and there's a fire burning, then it's like ignoring it is definitely not the solution. So that's number one. Number two, with that person's guidance, I would say then you figure out how you're going to address it with your husband in this situation. Remember, it could also be the other way around, the husband and a wife, the other way around. But since the letter is written in this fashion, I'm addressing it in this way. And I would not just go confront without a game plan because confronting can end up happening that he can call your bluff and say, okay, I'm not going to do it again. You'll say, okay, I trust you. And then you create a very unhealthy, dysfunctional um, relationship around this. Because on one hand, he says, you're not trusting me. On the other hand, you realize you can't trust him. So therefore, it's very important that you get guidance on how to do this properly. And there comes a point, yes, where you have to be able to be tough, tough love, we could say this is beyond. This is really beyond, beyond acceptance. We can't, beyond acceptable, and we're going to have to do something. And to the point that may be a little bitter, he may not like it. He may fight with you. But that's where again guidance is so important. So I would say at this point, find someone to talk to. We will talk about more ideas and thoughts and 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 suggestions and options. But know it's not hopeless. First of all, everybody can be healed. If you want to use that word, everybody can 
overcome challenges, even difficult ones. And everyone has the strength, I'm talking now to the spouse, to you, the wife, the strength to deal and become stronger knowing how to deal with this. So most important to know that it's not hopeless. And the month of Elul, when better time to recognize that? Because the worst of all betrayals was when the Jewish people built the golden calf. That was total adultery. Literally, that was complete infidelity, violation of God, one God and not other gods, as God said in the Ten Commandments. And yet Moshe was able to attain the forgiveness of Yom Kippur, Salach as we discussed earlier. So we will talk more about this. And Messiah um, Betev, that I have no doubt, especially in the month of El, a new year coming, that you can create a new, turn a new leaf and create a new opening and new possibilities. And never feel a victim and that this is hopeless and a fatalistic approach because that's simply not the truth. And you have a play a tremendous role because you are the one that has the clarity and hopefully the strength and fortitude to move it forward to a better place. Okay. With that, let me see. Due to time, I realize I can't. Always running out of time. What should I tell you, my friends? Okay, a few other topics I wanted to speak about, so there's always next week. Let me deal with the Hasidic question of the week. We learn in the Gemara, and the Gemara, I'll tell you, is Rosh Hashanah, Daf Lamed Aleph, Omer Aleph, 31a, and Sanhedrin, Sadik Zayin, Omer Aleph, 97a. Shit al-Fashrin hava alma. Katina says the, the, the existence will be 6,000 years, 6 millennia, and then will be Chat Charuv, 1,000 years of destruction. Comes another day, Baya, that says there will be 2,000 years of destruction. What is the meaning of this destruction? How does Chassidus explain it? And a more detailed aspect of the question there's a teaching that each thousand years of creation refers to a day of the week. And the sixth and the seventh millennia, which is the messianic area, is compared to Shabbos. Does this imply the messianic era will only, messianic era will only last 1,000 years and not be permanent? Okay, so there's two parts to the question. So this, this is a topic that's quite discussed in many, many Rishenim, starting from the Rambam, the Raivid, the Barbanel, the Rajbo, and many others. Alpinigla, when you read it, it sounds like 1,000 years of destruction. What does destruction mean? And it gets more complicated because this Gemara follows the statement that says, Shir every day is song that was sung, that was said in the Beis HaMidish, and we say the Shir Shayim. So every day has its Shir, and Shabbos, the Yem Shekulei Shabbos, talking about Lossed Lavi, the 7,000th year, which, as you said correctly, the Ramban and Bechai, I should also mention, Beis Gimel, Bebreshis 2-3, talk about the correspondence of the days to the millennia. So Shabbos, Yem Shekul Shabbos, Shabbos has the word also. Shabbos also means Shvisa, can mean ending something. It can also refer to being, destroying something. But Shabbos, we don't see it as destroying. We see it as ending the week, 
of the work week and entering into a spiritual space. So what is something when we say chat charuv has some type of negative implication? So there are different opinions of what charuv means and cited in the different commentaries. The Ravid on the Rambam in Hilchas Malachim, in Hilchas Tshuva rather, the end of chapter 8, talks about it. He's saying that the Rambam seems to suggest that, that, that denying this Gemara of Chad Charuv, the Kesef Mishnah comes and reconciles. The Rajba, who of course was a great advocate of the Rambam, says that this, there are no differing opinions. Everyone holds, everyone agrees, Chad or Tre Charuv. The question is 1,000 or 2,000. So what does this Charuv mean? So Chassidus does discuss it. And they're actually cited in a sicha from the Rebbe in Chelek Zayin, B'chul Kesei, the first sicha. The Rebbe speaks about it and a footnote brings from Teres Chaim, the beginning of Breshis, from Eira Teire Breshis, Eira Teire Vayikro, Shira Shirim, Shira Shirim Tofresh Chav Zayin from the Mitle Rebbe, from the Rebbe Marash, which is built upon, based upon the Tzamech Tzadik's Eira Teire Shira Shirim. If you look in the Eira Chat Charuv, or Charuv, Chat Charuv, in Sefer Lekutim of the Tzamech Tzadik, there's a whole bunch of explanations cited there. Briefly, the answer is, Charuv is taka from the word Shabbos. Destruction means the cessation of the regular mundane order. Just like Shabbos is the cessation of work day. And the weekday, the seventh millennia, will be a messianic era of a Shabbos time. Where there'll be the cessation of the battles with the Yetzirah, and with the corruption, and with the materialism of this world. So in other words, it's not necessarily a physical destruction. Even if you say physical, it's a physical destruction of the physical reality as we know it now. Then the physicality will be far more refined. In the Sikha excited, in Bechukese, he brings the two opinions about Shabbos, on the Pasuk, Vishbesi Chayiram in Oretz. What does Vishbesi mean? So there's two opinions. One is that the Chayas Raz, the animal, the wild animals, will no longer be predators. They no longer will cause damage. There's another opinion, Mavinam in They'll be completely eliminated. Says the Rebbe, possibly according to the second opinion, that's 2,000 years. The first one will be that they no longer will be destructive, but they'll still exist. And the second one, they'll be completely eliminated which is like a real chidush. Because before Chetet Sadas, the animals also were not destructive, as he explains there. In um, the Shaloh, he cites Chayet. The Chayet was a commentary from Yehuda Chaim, commentary on the Sefer Mareches HaLakus, Sefer from the time of the Ramban, a Kabbalistic book. And the Chayet elaborates at length that Semach Tzedek also cites him that we're talking about a change in the physical reality because it's been refined to reach a much higher spiritual state. And everyone agrees that after that thousand or two thousand, there'll be a Shemayim HaChadosh and will be complete new reality. So bottom line, according to Chassidus, it means that after all the work we've done, the Avedis HaBirurim, during the six thousand years, or hopefully less than that, because when Mashiach comes, it could be earlier, and will be earlier as we promised, now comes a state of Shabbos and Menucha Lachai Elomim. Menucha. Shabbos and Menucha. 
which consists of, yes, eliminating destructive forces, Ruach but it also includes the deeper aspect of Shabbos Menucha, serenity, a deeper spiritual serenity. That's why it says, Tzadikim will be given wings and they will float on the waters, as he explains in those Maimorim. And after that, will come a whole new reality. So we'll discuss it more in a, pre- in a coming episode, but we'll stop here due to time limits. This has been My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 324, continuing powerful Chedish El, Cheshben and Achana, accountability and preparing for the new year. It should be a good Giben Shtiar, much greater and better than ever before. All Helen, Halomis, Vastadim, all darkness should be transformed into, into light. And we should talk into light. And Yusrin Ermin Achesh, a more intense light. And we should be Zechitak into the Gaula of Yemshu Kulishabas and Manucha Lechaya Elami. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapply.com slash donate.